Robert Berta works as a consultant for an ethical consultancy specializing in executive coaching, diplomatic training, and anti-corruption, amongst other things. He also runs an NGO in the social justice space. However, for today's purposes, he describes himself as just someone who has written an unlikely and thought-provoking poem about a very special person, a woman, probably a domestic worker, standing at a gate, a gate in time. Robert, welcome to the late sessions. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Um, so I think it's always powerful for a poet to read a poem in the tone and manner that they intended it. So if you wouldn't mind, could you um, grace us with a reading of the poem? Thank you very much. I stand at your gate, madam. On time, 7.30 Saturday, as requested. It's cold. It's taken time, two hours to be exact, to wake, to wash, to walk, taxi one, bus one, taxi two, to walk, at your gate, 7.30 Saturday, on time, as requested. Your convenience, madam. But you forgot. You are sleeping. Your phone is off. What must I do? Shout? Will you hear? Hundreds of years' frustration. Servant servitude, at your gate. 7.30, Saturday, on time. Waiting for you to wake up. Change is coming for you, for me. But I suspect that while your color may change, I will still be at your gate, waiting for you to wake up. But you, madam, will still be sleeping. But I am, madam, on time. Oh, that's amazing. There's something so special about uh, a live reading by a poet. So thank you so much for that. I'm also very excited because when we reviewed the poem, I read it in a very similar tone. And it's hard to know the poem, the tone that was intended. And this is the difficulty with writing, is to convey tone through your words. And so you've obviously done that incredibly well, um, because I think I, I sort of intuitively read it in the in the same manner. Okay, so before we get into it, though, I would like you to tell us a bit more about yourself. So I'm 52, middle-aged, a uh, guy trying to married with four children, uh, working in the social justice space, running an NGO like many people in that space. Mm. It's, a, it's a daily battle. I also run a consultancy practice uh, together with some colleagues, and I yeah, I'm trying to make sense, give meaning to where we where we at today, uh. with the strong power and influence of the past, and to some degree uncertainty about the future. Wow. Okay. So um, I think that echoes a lot of <laughs> what we try to do here on the show, and uh, what so many South Africans try to do. Um, and I think there's something so so beautiful about your medium of, of choice being poetry and being being words. I mean, I think our, our, our national discourse is incredibly rich in words. Um, people write articles, essays, books, but you've done something so beautiful here. And I almost think you're, <laughs> in my mind, you're, you're a unicorn, first of all, because you're a white male who's been able to channel a very complex and loaded reality um, in such a a profound way and then secondly to do so in so few words when we're like i said like we have a disc 
course that is so verbose and often those words don't really mean, mean anything. Um, so to, to, to capture such a rich conversation and such a rich narrative and, and so few words is absolutely amazing. And I just want to say that you are very modest, but I, I salute you from writer to writer. So thank you for this poem. So I don't want to do kind of an academic review. I mean, thematically, a lot of things stick out for me, but what I want is for you in your own words, um, to describe what this poem is about. So maybe just to contextualize, I think all poetry lies in the crevice of a soul. So mm. the, the, the person who's, who's writing, who's conveying the message, they have to, they, it, it, it finds itself within them, generally within the pain, the suffering, the shadows, the aspirations, the unknowns, and it articulates. It kind of has its life of its own. So with this particular poem, I was uh, going to a breakfast meeting quite early, 730 and I saw this woman standing at a gate mm. um, with a cell phone in her hand. And I'm often witnessing people at gates. Mm. I, I see young people scavenging for food mm. out of dustbins. They, they're looking for plastic or they're looking for paper. They're looking for something to salvage or they're looking for food. And we kind of just unstructured, unsorted. We don't sort our junk. And so people, if we sorted out junk, then that that kind of uh, scavenging would make more sense, be more meaning. And we don't have to have people eat rotten food. We could have right. proper food put out, little right. small sensitivities and identification. So I think that I am uh, in this process of experiencing people at gates. And so when I saw this woman standing in distress – it touched me at a very deep level, I think, and it went right into my childhood subconscious. And you say that she's not necessarily a domestic worker. I noticed that. So you you, you said in your – when I read your biography earlier, um, you said this is a poem about a woman, probably a domestic worker. And yet in our minds when we read it, it was speaking so directly to domestic work. Well, in my mind, she was a domestic worker. Yeah. But I think there's always this – Sort of assumptions that we make about right. people, okay. and I, and and I think that she was okay. Just a, I just had a sense of that, but that doesn't. So is mean it correct that, then no. to say that the poem is about domestic work for well, starters? Well, as the writer of the poem, that was the okay. impression gotcha. I had. Gotcha. <laughs> anyway, so you were you were still explaining um, what 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 it's about for you. So I don't think that poetry is something that you cognitively sit down and think I'm going to write something about this to make sense of it. It's somehow, well, for me anyway, it's something that already exists deep within you. And so you just sit down and then there's a flow of language, of words, right. of sound, rhythm, structure, nuance, and leveling. And it's all one thing. So I sat down uh, where I was waiting for the meeting and I wrote mm. this poem pretty much without changing anything it was complete, and I'm glad I didn't know that it was going to be discussed, you know, because mm. uh, I would have probably not been able to write it with the simplicity and the distillation of um, rawness. Okay, so you you saw this woman, um, you assumed, like we all do, that she might be a domestic worker, and then set out to write a poem about domestic work in a meeting, no less, which is <laughs> absolutely amazing as well. Um, 
What is your personal experience of domestic work in this country? So I think that this is where the this is where the pain lies. Mm. I think I think this is where this is where the complexity lies, mm. it, and, and and I think this is where we make so many errors of assumptions about people. This mm. is where we are caught within the South African narrative of color, class, and gender, mm. and they're very powerful. Um, they're very powerful uh, issues that are structurally there. They are politically there, economically, historically, but they're very deeply embedded in the person, the personhood of South Africans. And so, in that we we go into a binary place of um, I'm the euro, I'm the victim, and yet the truth is much mm, more complex it's a lot than, more that. than that. Yeah. So as a child, I grew up probably. Um, with a strong identification of women working in our home right. and an emotional attachment to them. Mm. And I think that my consciousness of injustice was already processing itself. Um, the disconnect between many things seemed wrong already for me. And because I was emotionally attached and I was in a, a um, this deep feeling of Love and care and being loved and being cared for. It was a love relationship mm. as a child with a mother figure. Um, I think that this echo in the discourse is missing. And, and I think I didn't intend to have this discussion. Right. It's just an echo that's come out. Right. And I think that the injustice lies in how women are treated in homes. There's, they have no power, uh, I can remember um, the women working in our home. Uh, one day they're there, the next day they're gone. Mm. And there wasn't any time to say goodbye, to grieve, to even understand why they're gone. And the power lying in, um, in my mother being able to dismiss the domestic worker for whatever subjective, arbitrary reason she had um, is in some ways deeply embedded in my Understanding of society and the power dynamics in society and the injustice that goes with that. Mm. So it's a small child in me trying to make sense of injustice and the grieving of emotional relationships that were lost. And that's how it reflects. So do you think that goes for a lot of white males in South, in South Africa? And I say white males because they're probably the least associated to this role, right? So you're... I mean, this is, and you say it yourself, you say this is an unlikely poem because you're a middle-aged white male, um, a consultant. And in, in many ways, the extreme opposite of w what a domestic worker is in this country in terms of, in terms of experience, perhaps in terms of privilege, um, whatever the case may be, even though, even if those are just assumptions, right? Um, and so do you feel like do you feel like white men are written out of certain conversations as a result because they they they're deemed to to not be able to to relate or to come from a place of privilege I think that we living in a in a society of two minute noodles where everybody wants to have a very simplistic type immediate answer response so in in categorizing people as you are a white male mm. 
it has the same two minute noodle type effect as saying you are a black youth mm. or you are a black domestic worker. Mm. These are labels that we give, but do they really reflect the character, the personality, the intelligence, the, the vocation, the calling, the purpose and identity of the person we we're looking at it from a very small lens mm. which is time but that person has infinity in them they have they have something of much bigger and so for example yesterday i was we i'm busy working i was having a discussion with a one of the cleaning one of the cleaning staff mm. and this woman um i t- i took time to ask her about herself and about i'm interested uh, I want to know the person, mm. and she's a graduate mm. in public administration, but she could never get work. And now she's this middle-aged woman, being trapped in doing work that um, it's not demeaning, it's not negative, it's just not satisfying for her. And she would have liked to have done something different. Every day, she's doing the same thing over and over and over again, and it's hell. Mm. It's like a torture. She. She could have done something different. And the reason why she's trapped in that is for structural reasons, right. historical injustice. Right. And I think that um, this interests me. Okay. And so um, when you wrote this poem and when you engage in such matters um, or when you vocalize them or when you channel these experiences, which I think you do so well, um, is there any reluctance about your own your place in the narrative, your own identity? Do you carry that kind of fear or frustration or self-doubt? I think that even to say, you know, I think of myself as a poet, it's mm. it seems fake because I don't think of myself like that. When I was a diplomat, am I a diplomat? I didn't feel that I was a diplomat. I'm working as an NGO. Am I a social justice activists. I don't feel that. Mm. I don't, my identity isn't really in these labels. So, Mm. uh, because these labels are many ways don't reflect the complexity and the depth Mm. and my existence, but they merely mirrors Mm. of where I am. And so, yes, there's, there is, but I think that anybody who's above in middle age is in a state of, uh, Reflection and um, crisis of some sort, whether what you've done with your life has made sense and um, could you have done it differently. And I think that it's normal part of our, our journey of maturing. But I think that what makes your reflection, for instance, so rich is that uh, your idea of yourself is so fluid. Um, you haven't constructed yourself per se. And do you think that in a sense that because we're, we you know we're we're a country and a culture that profiles. That's how we kind of make sense of things, and there is value in profiling to some extent. Um, but I think it can also get in the way. So, do you think that um, identification or identity, in a sense, can get in the way of empathy? So, do you think that people can presume that they 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 can't identify with somebody and can't write a poem like this well, because I- they're too different? I think it's because we take on identity as labels given to us by other people. I think we're in an existentialist crisis with mm. identity because, first of all, identity and is not located within just a time base from cradle to grave. It comes from a different place. 
it comes from a infinite space. So I'm always interested in this tension, this dissonance between the cosmic dance mm. of infinity within the dust and in the sand of 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 time. And I think that this is that spiritual, deeply spiritual. Okay. And I think it is it is the the loneliness. And the separation from innocence, from perfection, from greatness, from intimate love and belonging. And I think that that separation is what makes for creativity. It mm. is the dissonance. It's the disconnect. It's the paradox that creates a deeply inspirational flow of consciousness. And, and it comes into language and design and Mirroring things of a different world in a way, and and I think that that's quite, Im- I think that it's quite important to allow. So, do you think then that you look for yourself? You describe this loneliness and this emptiness and this 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 wanting to connect. Do you think you look for for yourself in different people and different experiences? And is that how you're able to to channel um, these things? Is in a way to search for yourself in in the world and in other people. So I think I've sort of my self-knowledge is that as I've discovered contemplative spirituality is my preferred language of prayer. So I, I enjoy silence. I so find, explain that for people who have no idea what so, you're talking so, about. So silence is a language. Right. And it's a, it's a very powerful, sophisticated language that can articulate subconscious and sub and conscious thoughts in a very quick and powerful way. So just sitting and being. Mm. Is a, it can be, so you can have prayer to God, however you want to, uh, in your own tradition, define that you can use silence. Mm. And you can use also silence in a relationship where you can just sit and be and allow your essence to touch. Mm. And I think we, we're afraid of that. And so because we're afraid of silence, we're afraid of, of intimacy. And because intimacy, we're afraid of intimacy, we're afraid of silence and they go together. So as, Silence is my preferred language of prayer. Uh, I'm discovering uh, pretty late in life that I find poetry is a expression of my social mm. frustration and my social desire for action and mm. for change. Speaking of silence, there is kind of a, a silent undertone about your writing, and now, like I was, I hadn't been able to kind of pinpoint it before, um, and it's it's kind of. It's there in, in, in the tone. It's there in, in how few words you use. Um, my, my co-host, who's in many ways a lot more intelligent than me, um, kind of described the structure of the poem as, um, breathless sentences. And you also, there's a lot of full stops, a lot of pauses. Um, in the way that you've written it, it kind of compels you to pause and reflect. Mm. Um, and then you also repeat words like madam and words like, um, or phrases like at your gate. Um, and you use the word time over and over again. Um, but yes, si- si- silent, there's definitely kind of a quiet undertone about it. So I was wondering if you, could you maybe speak to the tone of the poem and the structure and what your thinking was behind that? Not easily. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> because it, it would, it would, it would imply that there was thought given to it. <laughs> and there wasn't. You know, it, it, it was, I, I was driving, I was deeply moved, something 
touched my soul. I sat down in a quiet moment waiting for my guest, and I wrote this poem, and it was finished. Mm. So to say, to claim that it had some kind of thought to structure, rhythm, pause, it, 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 or even vocabulary, I can't claim that. Okay. Well, um, that's certainly something that seems very methodical and deliberate. So I want to credit you for that. (laughs) But I also think, I think there's a lot to learn from that. Even though it was a happy accident, I think a lot of our, our discourse in this country is very noisy. Um, a lot of what we read, a lot of the words we use very, very noisy. And it's, it's kind of, it's hard to stop and reflect because it goes back and forth and back and forth and everyone's trying to get a word in and everyone's trying to explain. So do you think there's a, a, uh, for writers, any writer, for a journalist, uh, for an author, even for people in dialogue, do you think there's a strength in in silence, in thinking about silence? Yes, because you must, when you write, you're a voice. And I think the power lies in authenticity mm. and integrity. So when you write, you have to reach down within yourself to find your True voice Mm. And if your mind is filled with Your audience and it's filled with Structure and and Format and then It doesn't connect But if you completely uh, Oblivious to that and you Reach down deeper in yourself And you find your inner voice Mm. uh, The best way of describing your Inner voice is like if you Stand in the felt And you waiting for a wild Animal to emerge Mm. You've got to be very quiet because they're skittish. And if you just rest long enough, this <laughs> wild animal comes out of the, the mist and you can confront it. And that is who you are. And that is your inner voice. The rest is noise. The rest is very constructed around human ego and human expression. But there's something deeper than that. That's so beautifully described because you've spoken to something that is actually so primal, but is definitely in us. Yes. You know? It's a voice. Because we used to, we used to hunt animals. Um, and I think with evolution, human beings have become more wordy, more no- noisy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we used to exist in kind of relative quiet, you know, even before the existence of language. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think you've tapped into something there, um, that you, we often don't think about when we're trying to communicate. We kind of get lost in, in, in the words. And that's where beauty lies. It's mm-hmm. in that, Authentic, real voice uh, So you're saying the words will come If you're able to access that place it's mystic- Then the words are kind of it's, a, it's, 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 it's mystical in the sense that Although there's a clear method Methodology The inspiration cannot be Purely explained in method So I think So the words for you are completely incidental And the structure It's just about accessing that place And then it pours out Yes. So I do executive coaching. So, for example, mm. when I'm working with the leader, right. I, I try to mirror for them that they must look through me and they must find their own true voice. Because in that voice has been downloaded everything they need for leadership. Because leadership is always a tension between envisioning the dream and managing the nightmare. So the leader holds that space. And so they, so they have to find within themselves the ethics the innovation, the inspiration, the grace 
to relationally hold people. They have to deal with their loneliness because they can't constantly need affirmation, validation. They have to be independent. They have to lead, and they have to lead as a from, in a sense, not from an ego, power, charismatic base, but from a deeply rooted ethical direction base. To do that, they have to find themselves, and so it's I, incredible. I, and everybody has that, and I'm excited when I, and I got that from learning to work with children. I work with child-headed households, and each child has that, and so they're defined by their poverty, by their suffering, by the grief, by the loss, by post-traumatic stress disorder. All those labels are there, and I'm not diminishing their significance, mm. but that child has their own voice, mm. and I think that is. The greatest gift is to relate in community to help us find each other's voice. So at a broader narrative, what we want in South Africa is we want to sit in a, in community and say, let's hear each other, let's find each other's inner voice, the true voice, because that's where integrity and uh, authenticity lies, and that's where we can relate Absolutely. And, and move forward. Absolutely. I love that. And and just to to – Bring it back to domestic work. I think you'll be really good at, at answering this question. Um, if there are men out there, because men have, men in general are, are kind of least associated to the space. Um, the kind of archetype is the madam domestic worker relationship, you know, and you use the title madam in, in, in your poem. And that's kind of the conditioning, right? Is that ma- women or madams are seen as kind of the, the authority or the proverbial Patriarch in the domestic worker mm. realm, um, and so we've even—I mean, we've we've had very few men on the show, for instance, because a lot of men just don't seem to think it has anything to do with them. Um, so, if there are men out there who perhaps don't know how to relate to their domestic workers, right, or if they have a role to play, despite their best. Intentions. I have two questions for you. First of all, um, and this is kind of what you've spoken about. How can they go about it? You know, what is kind of the, that the gateway to to empathy and to relating in that relationship? Oh, that's a complex question. I I don't know. To be honest, I I can't really. I can't speak. I mean, it's this dilemma. I can't speak on behalf of for you. For me, well, we don't have servants in our home because of the pain and and because of the the, the complexity. We just we, we we in our home because of my pain of my childhood. Mm. We we don't have that. So I've dealt with that, the contradictions and the complexity of that by not having those relationships. Mm. But there's definitely. But that's not a solution to. And these are, then what about the ethic of giving employment and right. so these are, if you just, if everybody just said we don't have servants in the home because it causes pain and because of dissonance and because of power paradigms and complexity, then we'd have a lot of people unemployed and the sure. informal sector is very vulnerable. Sure. So it's, it's, it, it's not an ideological political discourse. This is something quite Intimate, and I think you can't really have one as one size fit all. I think men. So to say, what do I don't know whether we can just say men. What it's just in my sense, homes are intimate spaces where right. we. So this delineation between the man, the woman, the male, the female, the madam, 
the absent boss or father figure. I mean, all of these things are very stereotypical, and I don't think they apply. Every home is so differently configured mm. and different dynamics. I don't think there's a one size for all. I would say the the relationship in a home is where we learn to relate in a nation. Mm. And it is where we build relational skills, where we where we build relational intelligence mm. and relational thinking. And it is it is our learning. So for me, that space has deeply formed me as an individual, as an adult, mm. from my childhood. It was a it was the things that caused me grief and caused me pain. They were negative, but they have shaped me, I think in a positive way, the framing, the meaning has been given a positive. So we must allow the messiness. I don't think life can be choreographed. It has to, the messiness has to be allowed, but we need to find different ways of thinking relationally. And relationally, by that I mean power, mm. values, history, amount of contact, connectivity, mm. the ability to connect with the essence of people beyond just roles necessarily. What was it about your situation growing up within your home that made you so privy to what a domestic worker goes through? Because it's one thing I think, and you you said this to me earlier, you said the, the, the thing about your work is that it's always about it, something outside yourself. It's always about the subject or the object. You never make it about yourself, right? Um so I think in a sense it's one thing to to reflect on what your domestic worker meant to you, which a lot of people do, and I I have as well, right? And I'm very much at the, in many ways, the center of that reflective process. It's one thing to do that. It's nothing entirely to be able to 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 somehow embody what she must have been going through, or she must be going through on a daily basis. And so I'm I'm trying to figure out, I guess, to distill what gave you access to that. Experience. I think all people have got a a deep need to connect with their true selves, and the true self is timeless, infinity, and the the but be trapped in time, we trapped in a history, we trapped in a particular narrative. So in all of us, they are. They are uh, children's voices. Mm. So my voice is, I can remember um, really loving this woman. And one day she she left. She was upset. She was crying. She left my, my home. And she was walking down the street. And I can remember running behind her as a small boy crying, calling out to her. I wanted, I wanted to connect. And we didn't even have a chance to say goodbye. And um, so I think... Do you remember what happened? Well, I think, you know, uh, there was an altercation between her and my mother, and my mother obviously had the power to decide to dismiss the woman, and she was dismissed, and then she went. Mm. So so there's not there's something that's not reconciled inside of me, the child with the woman. And so that is just a memory. It's an echo in my soul. And so when I see the woman standing at the gate, mm. the child in me mm-hmm. echoes, and I connected a deep level of attachment and identification and with that is emotion and the emotion is what gives poetry 
authenticity and life of its own. So is this a poem about her and your mother? I don't know. I think that poem, poetry have the, it, they, they, they like, they catch, they catch, catch a message, a sound from maybe somewhere else. And then they articulate it through the messenger and the mm. messenger, and uh, I don't want to use the word contaminates, but they express the message. Mm. And the message that they express is obviously framed within their own history, identity, and things like that. So all poems have a characteristic of the poet. Mm. But I think it's a mistake to to limit poetry to its author mm. because poetry has a life of its own. And the people that read it give it life of its own for them. And that's the beauty of create, sure. creating language sure. and poetry and meaning like that. Sure. Um, and I think that's part of the strength of this poem is that you haven't loaded it with your personal experience. You know, there's just so much left to the imagination and yeah. there's so much um, we can kind of all latch onto. The poem is layered. Mm. And I didn't realize that when I wrote it. But uh-huh. it so the first, the, the first layering All is, this accidental technique. I love it. <laughs> Go ahead. So the first, so the first part is, you know, it's this to wake, to wash, to walk, text. It's got this movement. And then. It does dance a little bit, huh? Yes. And then there's waiting. So it's the movement and then the waiting. So there's the tension of that. And then, um, and then, then it moves. It's really, you get the sense of the woman standing at the gate. Uh, you have a picture of her. Another a friend of mine who read the poem thought he was a it was a man standing at the gate. He was a gardener. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So so really. So you have this dynamic. Do you make reference to gender at any point? No. Huh. So we're assuming we're assuming we're assuming this, but it was a woman at the gate. Right. So so the one layering is you get this picture of it. It could be a. It could be a um, a race issue, right? But then it shifts to a class issue, mm. uh, and you know your your color may change. While your color may change, I will still be at your gate. Mm. So it's a, it becomes a class issue. Mm. But what I like about the poem, if I can say I like it, <laughs> you're more than welcome um, to. We all do. <laughs> what I like about it is the end, where it says. Uh, but I am, madam, on time. And that speaks to me of the, the fork in the road. Do we, are we going to go for some kind of social reform or are we going to go for some kind of social revolution? Because it's brewing. It's like it's pregnant. The nation is pregnant mm. with frustration and servitude and anger mm. and it's brewing and it's bubbling and there's, Injustice and the injustice is just flowing structurally into different, different class structures and political elite systems. But they, the color's changing, but it's still the same. There's an Mm. inherent sense of injustice that the poor always get the raw deal and they are frustrated and like this woman at the gate, they are on time for change. And what change we're going to have, I don't know. Who is late? The status quo always protects their interests and it delays societal change and transformation. And so what is late is transformation in this country. Okay. 
Hmm. And so you're saying that real transformation goes beyond the aesthetics. Transformation is essentially the transforming ourselves yeah. from our time to our infinite and finding our true ethic voice and and I believe and then from that spiritual transformation of I believe relating to God and finding a tradition that that you believe in then from that you translate into relational intimate family trans transform and then your circles your relational circles trans to form but eventually transformation lies in structure in yeah. systems in nations the political economy of a country Uh, and in this transformational journey there's always this tension between the nightmare and the dream so do you think that we have a an aesthetic relationship with transformation well we i think it's like a railway track when you speak about the only thing that changes being essentially aesthetic a color is because there hasn't been a class change mm and i wonder if there's a i mean we still got a we still got a working uh, informal working class that are suppressed and struggling and i wonder because you know what the thing that i know and we've learned about domestic work through this process is that it cuts across classes yes. social classes and it cuts across racial divides as well right um very rich people have domestic workers middle class people have domestic workers we've often heard domestic workers who will essentially employ a childminder or a domestic worker so that they can mm. go to work. Mm. So do you think that speaks to something more? And and then and across those across those divides or those categories um domestic workers are treated the same. Yeah, for me it's about servanthood. Mm. I mean as a diplomat I always thought I was a servant in a manor house, sort of 18th century manor house. you you in the the gentry's residence but you're a servant uh you have access to to the gentry but you're not gentry so you're a, you're a civil servant you're a public servant that has access to power to the political elite the business elite but you remain a kind of peripheral and so i i just i experienced the servanthood mm. uh, at a different level mm. and then and i think that it is there's something honorable there's something that we mustn't diminish and demean and devalue about being a servant mm. and i think that in our kind of society where we have this upward mobility we have this assumption that that success is upward mobility right and so uh, but my experience for example in in diplomacy which is really f- most of my life was was formed from that is that we got all these titles we call your your holiness for the pope your your eminence for a cardinal your grace for a bishop uh kings and queens of your majesty uh your excellency your royal highness all these titles that deeply spiritual yet we give them to people and yet my understanding is that the more power you have the more knowledge the more educated the more money and mm. the more influence you have the more you responsibility you have as a servant mm. to serve the marginalized and the vulnerable that's my world view and so i see the world through that lens and so mm. so i don't have a kind, i i don't like a paternalistic patronizing 
attitude towards the marginalized and the oppressed because it devalues their dignity, the value of their work, their worth. So I I think there's a tension in this discussion. In the same token, do you think there is a, a power and a strength to, to domestic workers as servants that isn't attributed to them? Yes. In that I, role. Yes, and I think and I think that they have access to intimacy. They're coming mm. into intimate spaces and mm. places. They're picking up the emotional, uh, relational vibes between the adults. They they they're in the emotional spaces with the children. Mm. They're loving. Mm. They're caring. Mm. And a lot of these women have faith. And so they, when they're there, they're praying and they they actually. They have, they're bringing the presence. They're bringing presence into a home. Mm. They're bringing, they're bringing something. They are a carrier of something in the home. Mm. And yet they're not, because they're not recognized and they're not seen doesn't mean that what the, the presence that they're carrying isn't of incredible value. And Should I think we? it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. And towards, Closing, um, I first want to ask you, what do you hope people will feel when they read this poem? And I'd like you to give me that answer in three words. Three feelings. To reflect. Mm. To feel. Mm. And then to be. Hmm. Fantastic. I'm dying to, to ask a follow-up question, but I'm not going to. I'm going to leave it at that <laughs> because I think I should. Um, okay, and then lastly, Robert, why do you care? So, you know, we started, we started this discussion in Bali with a poem, so you've, you're indulging me to close with a poem, and I, and I appreciate the indulgence. Of course. So I was asked this question, uh, why am I as a white man involved in caring for black children? And the question was asked in a way that it, 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 it was... For black children or for black people? No, I'm working with child-headed households okay. in my, in my uh, NGO space. So, okay. And it, it made me feel ashamed. And I didn't understand why, why was I feeling this. I wrote this. Okay. They question why I care, the stare, deep within my soul of shame, historical purgatory, constructed theology. I cringe at the thought, pejorative, nowhere to hide, to go, exile deferred, my home, my place in time, my heart sublime. Can you not see beyond rhetorical dysentery, my God I love? His lens I find, I look, neglected child, alone, free from fascist control, racial hyperbole. I run, respond, race of grace, to find my own eternal place. Stare no more. Let's leave our own mediocrity, self-obsession, neurosis defined, and stand beyond the walls of bigotry. Gosh, you have such a an honest and an open and a powerful way of reflecting. Um, for the Philistines amongst, <laughs> amongst us, um, do you want to just briefly tell us what you're saying in that poem? Oof. So I think that we are staring at each other, and, and how we stare 
matters a lot, the attitudes of our hearts. And we all have a sense of shame, I think, uh, for different reasons. Uh, I think for historically South Africa, it's trapped in a racial, uh, in a racial code. And, and I have a sense of that, being mm. white. And I, and I, and I reflect on that. And there's a sense of historical purgatory. It's as if, um, I've been placed in a waiting, you know, purgatory is a mm. theological, uh, concept. Uh, and I feel like I've been trapped in a place of purgatory, put there so that I could be redeemed. Mm. And, but it's a constructed theology and it makes me cringe. It's pejorative because it takes away my, my essence. I have nowhere to hide. I can't escape. I can't escape, escape my color. I can't escape my history. I can't escape my name. And yet I don't want to go into exile mm. because it must be deferred. Mm. So there's also a prophetic, also a prophetic layering here of saying, you know, I, I, um, the prophets and the poets often speak to the, the, the power with truth, and then when they fail, and they often fail, they go into exile on donkeys like Jeremiah who escaped into Egypt. I have a sense of, of that. But my home, this is my home in the south, in Africa. Uh, and uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's my place in time. I'm, I'm, I'm here only for a short time from cradle to grave, but it's where I've been located. It's my, it's my history. It's where I'm implanted. And it speaks to my heart. And I, and I ask the question, can you not see beyond Rhetorical dysentery. It's this incredible wordiness of, um, this racial discussion. Uh, we, it's, it's rhetorical mm. and it's got, it's like dysentery. It's, mm. it, it just, it just pours out. Pours out. And it's, it, and, and yet, my God, I love. Uh, his, his lens I find. I look and then I see, I see the neglected child alone, free from fascist control. So, um, I have a fear of when you don't deal with justice mm. appropriately, it creates a vacuum and it pulls into that vacuum violence. Mm. And violence promises this illusion of change and transformation. But with all violence, it just breaks and creates more and more pain and more destruction. And the people that they're trying to redeem and save, they just experience more pain and more destruction. And in this racial hyperbole, we, we, we fixated in South Africa. We can't see each other mm. because we got this, this hyperbole, this exaggerated sense without diminishing, but it's exaggerated. I run, respond, race of grace. It's like this sense of urgency to find my eternal place, to find a voice, to speak, to say, let us be, let us, let us connect, let us see each other. Let us stare no more and leave our own mediocrity, this self-obsession, our neuroses defined, narcissistic, and stand beyond the walls of bigotry. Mm. So that's really, I think, I like this poem. My son, um, uh, he, he's done a commentary on, on my poetry, and he, he writes that um, he, he's quite critical. He says, he, he, he talks about it being a... Um, White liberalist poetry addresses sites of contradiction and conflict in the post. Sure, he doesn't hold Africa. back, eh? <laughs> he says, stemming from the shame of whites who feel to be at war with their own community and their own ancestors. Oh, wow. He says you have this, raised him to be honest. <laughs> he says the style goes further to capture the same source of conflict within the self as whites come to understand white privilege and are confronted by it, leading to self-alienation. Huh. And I think that I mean, uh, and I and I'm and I'm proud that he 
he can be critical of the poetry and that he has his own voice. So that's that's amazing then, because that actually, I was trying to figure out how to put this question. I was going to ask you, what is your wish um, for white South Africans? Then I thought, no, what is your wish for the next generation? Then I thought, no, what is your wish for all South Africans? But I think um, your son, just your relationship with your son is a great way to capture it. So through your work, through your reflections, um, through your parenting, right? Through, through your being, what have you tried to convey to your son about this country and about these issues? And what do you hope to, to, to convey? I think we have violence in us. And we, we don't know how to address that violence. And so we relationally articulate it in different ways, from passive-aggressive to domineering, bullying to um, many, many wrong ways that cause, that cause pathology. I think we need to find ways of dealing with our own violence in us mm. and then to live a more gentle, kind, graceful, loving way that is not as judgmental, as critical, and using language to to cause pain mm. because language is beautiful. It's created with meaning for framing and for beauty. How old is your son? I've got four children. I've got a daughter, 24, son, 22. And the son who wrote this is 20 and I've got a little girl of 10. Okay. And what is your, what is your wish for them? Is that your wish for them is, is, is what you've just articulated to kind of address that inner violence and to I believe, come to a place of, of yes. harmony. Yes, I think they've got a vocation. They've got an identity and a purpose and a calling that's bigger than just the short time in time. And my, I think my greatest hope, as with my children, as with anybody, mm. is to help them find the, the, the inner voice mm. and to connect with that inner voice mm. and then, and then to live a brave, courageous life and live it to the full. Love, Generously, extravagantly, forgive easily, and be honest. And don't be trapped in a in a cage of needing constant affirmation, validation, but rather give it because it's so short in supply. Thank you so much, and I thank. I think that's a beautiful way to end. Thank, thank you. you so much uh, for for joining me. This has been truly a privilege, um, and I just want to I want to thank you for. This piece that we spoke about t today, the piece that you finished with, but for your work in general, um, I really think it's such a service to our country. So thank you. Thank you, Bali. And for more of Robert's beautiful work, you can visit his blog. Um, it's robertbuerta.blog. Is that correct? Um, and you'll find uh, more more of these polls and more of these reflections um, on that platform. And we'll post that on our social media pages as well. Our Twitter page is at Made Project. That's M-A-I-D-E Project. And our Facebook page is The Made Sessions. That's M-A-I-D-E Sessions. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, we will catch you later. Cliffcentral. I've got something important to tell you.